Hello and welcome to our podcast, Ever Heard of It? I'm Janet. I'm Beatriz. And we are two Hispanic speech-language pathologists living in Los Angeles. Yes, and today we are very lucky to have our very first guest on our podcast. Welcome. And her name is Kristen McDonald. Yes. I've been lucky enough to work with her for a whole year and learn from her. And I thought it would be very cool if we brought her on so she could tell us a little bit about the field of school-based psychology and about herself, too. So, uh, would you like to start? Tell yes. us a little bit about yourself. Yes. So, <clears throat> sorry, I have a little throat thing going on with my allergies and asthma, so you may hear that in the podcast. But a little bit about myself is I am Kristen McDonald, as she said. I graduated from UC Riverside. I got my undergrad in bio. And then I became a juvenile detention service officer. Realized that that was too much and I was getting injured and things like that. And so I went on to get my master's degree and my educational specialist in educational psychology and school psychology. And so currently I'm a school psychologist and I'm loving it. Okay, so you've been a school psychologist for a year now? I have been a school psychologist for a year now. And I think you shared that, so your undergrad is in bio. What was the biggest difference between your undergrad and your grad program? The biggest difference is in the undergrad program, I feel like there's a lot of um, classes that you don't necessarily need or want, you know? And I was like, uh, I don't really care about, um, you know, philosophy or whatever. And so in my graduate degree, it was really focused and there were all psychology classes. And so it was really super interesting. And it's something that I just really loved, honestly. And so it was easier. It was better. I just, I really encourage people to go get their master's degree and whatever. I have so many questions with your 30-second <clears throat> intro that it's really hard for me to focus on the school psychologist part. Okay. But I do have a question. Um, do Are there any prerequisites? I know because you went from such a drastic shift from like uh, bio to school psychology. Did you have to take any prerequisite coursework or, or how did you were you able to just directly apply for the master's program? Yeah, I actually didn't have to take any prerequisite coursework. I did have a few psychology classes that I took. And so, um, yeah, I was surprised. I didn't really have any prerequisites. I had to go take the CBEST, but I had already okay. taken that um, because I wanted to be a substitute for a while. Like, I could go on a rabbit hole about the, how I got from school psychology, how I got from where I was to school psychology. That's but, a whole other episode we're about to have you on again. Right. We need to have a part two. <laughs> yes. You know, look, if this is longer than it needs to be, then, you know, part two coming up. Yeah. No, but, um, yeah, so it wasn't a lot of prerequisites, honestly. It was like maybe one or two psychology classes. I feel like you could have got a degree in chewing bubble gum and became a <laughs> <Okay>. school psychologist. <laughs> That's great to know for anybody that might listen be to interested. you and be interested. Yes. Yeah. But then when you were actually in the program what are the requirements like the hours that you have to complete how long is an average program so the average program is about three years and so the first two years are coursework you know just behavior classes counseling classes assessment classes things like that and the last year is internship classes which is um where a supervisor of the university oversees you doing 1200 internship hours and those 1200 hours are equivalent to a full-time um, position in a school district for the entire year and so it is pretty intensive and there are paid internships my internship was not paid 
But, you know, I'm married and I have a husband. So, you know, I was like, he makes up where I lack. He was out there doing Uber at night. And so once you completed those hours, and I know I think you had shared just uh, before that you felt prepared, that your program really prepared you um, to kind of be in the setting that you're in now. What was something that you kind of had to learn as you went after you completed the program? So something I had to learn as I went is that um, all school districts are different. And so I didn't, I did not, um, well, my internship was completed in a different district than the district I'm currently working in. And so, you know, there's different requirements and there, the, the job of school psychologist is so broad that you can almost be doing anything. You can do counseling, all counseling. You can do all assessment and no counseling. You can do counseling, assessment, and behaviors. You can do admin duties, like, you know, discipline duties and things like that. And so I kind of wasn't prepared for that a little bit. And so it's just the transition from maybe my internship into a regular position. It was just different. And so you have to learn those new systems. And so I kind of was not prepared for that. And so it's something I had to learn along the way. And you just have to um, adapt your style to who your supervisor is at the time, essentially. Um, what is something that when you're doing your assessments, I guess, um, transitioning more to how our roles kind of interact, what is it that you're using to guide you? What is it um, like? What is your role in the assessment process? So my role in the assessment process is to give the psychoeducational evaluation. So psychoeducational evaluation is just the psychological assessments, which includes cognitive, which is your ability to think, understand, learn, and process, and the different processing areas. So like visual processing, auditory processing, how your brain interprets what you see, how your brain interprets what you hear, and then also the social-emotional um, how you are able to function in the school um, socially and emotionally and behaviorally. And then um, I also get the academic scores. I don't give the academic assessment. That's what the special education teacher does typically. And so I get all that data and then I look at the data and I determine whether a student has a disability. And there's 13 handicapping conditions um, under the California Education Code. And so we're looking at those disabilities. It varies though at different districts. At certain districts, you're only looking at like maybe four, which is other health impairment, ADHD, autism, and specific learning disability. And yeah, that's really an intellectual disability. So that's what you're looking for in some districts, but other districts have you looking at all 13, hard of hearing, visual impairment, orthopedic impairment and so it, it varies it really does vary okay and then when you're doing your process your assessment process I think we've talked we say usually if we introduce ourselves as speech language pathologists people are like huh what do you do yeah <laughs> my problem my child can speak properly I'm like yes we also do x y and z right yeah. yes so what is something that you find yourself I guess kind of um, explaining to parents or other colleagues that might be like a psychologist. No, 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 we don't. Well, I try to, when you hear a psychologist, it might evoke different feelings for each person. So in different cultures and things like that. And so I try to go in being really sensitive because people hear psychologists and they might think my kid's not crazy. And so I am a school psychologist, so I go according to the California Education Code. 
And so what I'm looking for are characteristics of a disability. So it's not an official diagnosis like you would a medical diagnosis where you're going to get medicine or or, you know, a specific type of care. Our care is more to see if you need special education services in the school. Can you not function? Is your disability um, severe enough where you can't function in the general education classroom without the special education supports? And so I try to explain that to parents and teachers and whoever else is interested. And I always like to include to kids because, you know, a lot of times students don't know what they're being called in for. And so I give a really simple explanation. I say, um, I'm here to see how your brain works. And everybody has things that they're really good at and everybody has things that they need help with. And so I always give an example of myself. I'll say Miss McDonald has difficulty with, you know, uh, visual processing or something like that. But Miss McDonald is able to read really well. So certain things you might need a little extra help with, and I'm here to help you with those things you might need a little extra help with. Okay. And once you are able to test them, we go through the process. If they do have an eligibility, um, I guess, what happens after? What, uh, that's always the question that we have in meetings, right? Like, what happens now? You, they have an eligibility, and so... So after they get the eligibility, so as for me, I give a recommendation on what where they should be placed. So it's a recommendation. It's always a team decision. So it's not just my decision. I'm not the end-all, be-all. However, a lot of people look at us as, oh, whatever the school psychologist says is what we should go with. However, it still is a team decision. So you as a speech-language pathologist also has a part in that. However, um, I basically make a recommendation on where they should be placed or where they should, what they need. So do they need RSP services, which is, you know, just they get pulled out for a little bit to a teacher and get some extra help in, in math or English? Or is it that, oh, you need to go to a different classroom, a smaller class size, you know, where you're getting more intensive support and there's more teachers and paraprofessionals and more adults in the room and it's more structured or do you need to go to a curriculum that's completely different from the general education curriculum? And you need to go to an alternate curriculum where um, it's, you know, they have to modify the standards for you because, you know, you're not quite able to meet the general education standards. And so there's a lot of different ways it could go. As for the school psychologist specifically, my job is done after they're placed until the next three years, then I'll assess again, or if a parent requests an assessment, then I'll assess again. However, um, if a student has like some social emotional concerns that are impacting them and impacting their academics and impacting their, their peer relationships and their staff relationships significantly, then what I do is provide uh, counseling services to those students. Okay. What are some of the more common eligibilities in, that you've come across in the school setting? So the most common is specific learning disability. That's the number one most common because it's pretty broad and a specific learning disability, well, you didn't ask me what it was. If you asked me, no, okay. Yeah, I would, that was going to be my next question. A specific learning disability is when you have average cognitive ability, so that's your ability to think, understand, learn, and process. So average, just regular, normal, but you have a deficit in one of the processing areas. There's quite a few processing areas visual processing, which is how your brain interprets what you see. Not your sight, but how your brain interprets it. 
auditory processing, which is how your brain interprets what you hear. Not your hearing, but how your brain interprets it. And then we have phonological processing, how your brain interprets letter sounds, blending, segmenting, decoding. We have sensory motor processing, how your brain sees information, interprets that information, and how your body responds with the motor control system. So that's like taking notes off of a board or, or copying letters or shapes or writing. And so there's quite a few different areas, and so we do see that the most. And um, yeah, and also it has to be correlated to an academic area. I forgot to mention that. So it has to be correlated to an academic area where you have another deficit. So you, you know, you might have uh, difficulty in math or reading or, or writing or listening comprehension. And so that's what I see the most. The second most would probably be autism. And right now, at this very moment, I'm seeing autism the most because my particular school has an autism program. And so I'm going to see autism a lot. I see autism more than I see specific learning disability. So I'm getting, you know, my autism training right now. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think I had a clear understanding of, of how different students can present when they have autism. But my understanding of SLD really got clarified the more and more meetings that I heard you present in um, because we overlap. So she mentioned phonological processing deficits, and oftentimes if my students were um, presenting below average or deficits in their articulation skills, they were also pre um, presenting auditory processing deficits or phonological processing deficits. And so it's kind of, it was very cool for me to see and understand when I can't explain certain things um, that maybe a teacher has a question about, like, well, you know, they're not understanding my questions or they're not um, hearing it. It is very cool, um, at least for me, to have someone else that can explain why. Yes. Like, what is happening? What is the process? And then also provide... Um, ideas. What do you provide them with at the end of your report? Just the, I, I provide them with a list of suggestions yeah. or things that they could use, you know, in the classroom or at home. Mm -hmm. And so now that you mentioned the auditory processing, it's so funny because a lot of teachers will be like, my student can't hear. Mm -hmm. And they probably tell you that it's like, it's something is not right. And you're like, well, I'm trying to tell you their brain is not interpreting <laughs> what they're hearing. Yes. It's not that they can't hear. So that's something that came up in a meeting that we had together. Yeah, and I think for me, I just tend to naturally, once it clicks for me, it's very frustrating to kind of hear people continue to say, no, they can't hear. And like, and because I just didn't at the time, right, have the understanding or the words to try to explain, it's their processing. It's not that they can't hear. They passed their hearing screening. Yes. <laughs> they can't hear. We have conversations, but... Um, maybe they need, what are some of those things? Can you provide uh, like some interventions? Or the suggestions that you suggestions. provide if somebody is for that specific example? Like so for auditory processing specifically, what you would want to do is speak slow and simply to them. Don't do long, drawn out sentences and multiple steps and sentences. So you want to speak slowly, speak simply. You want to have them to repeat the directions to you. So you would say, hey, go open the door, and they act like they didn't hear, or, you know, not that they act like they didn't hear you, but you think they're acting like they didn't hear you, but really their brain didn't process it. So then you say, hey, what did I just tell you? And so now their brain finally caught up. They could say, oh, you said to go open the door, or you repeat it to them. So repeat statements, 
have them repeat it back to you. You could uh, associate it with the picture. So if you have like a routine that you do the same thing every day, you could put your pictures there or you could go, hey, so when you wash your, I need you to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. So they heard go to the bathroom, but they didn't hear the wash your hands. So then you take them to the picture, go to the bathroom and then you point to the picture. So, you know, their brain, oh, wash your hands. So their brain interpret, interpreted that. And so really pictures, repeating, simple statements, have them repeat. And that's really the the best recommendations that you could give for auditory processing. I think it's nice to hear because it's things that we um, all do not or can do at least, not just at home, but in our therapy sessions we do. Um, I, again, the overlap for me just became very clear uh, the more that I heard her present when I would say, oh, Janet, for example, was able to follow, you know, familiar multiple step directions. But when during my testing, if I said point to the white dog that's barking, she pointed to a dog. She wasn't really processing the extent of, yes. or all the key aspects of that sentence. Yes. She did hear it, but her brain didn't process it. And it's crazy because even we have to get the lingo right, you know, because we're so used, even as a kid, you might remember your parent being like, you didn't hear me. And you're like, but I did, but it, you know, it just took a while. So you know, it's hard to to even train yourself not to think of it as this student can't hear or they're just ignoring me, you know? Oh, yeah, I feel like I have a little auditory. I've always felt that since uh, <laughs> when I learned, I, I cannot watch anything without subtitles. And if there's noise, I, I'll hear some things and I'm like, huh? And I remember growing up as a child, you know, did you hear me? And then, or sometimes now as an adult, I'll ask what, and then I'll, I'm like, oh, never mind. I understood you. So it's like, I it like, it, it, comes, it comes, like, I'll answer the question after I say what. People are like, but I thought you didn't hear me. It just takes my brain a little, but now I'll say, yeah. I'm like, I got auditory processing because I understand what it means. Yes. But um, as a child or, you know, as a parent sometimes you don't know what yes you just start yelling did you hear me right <laughs> and there's a statement in um my culture that they say if you could huh you could hear so if you say you know and so it's so funny but not necessarily you know yeah. so it's so it's just interesting to think of it that way well those are a lot of the things that I've learned from working with you I know that we're in different school districts Janet and I but um I've worked with other school-based psychologists too, and I just, again, I don't think I had a clear understanding of how our roles can kind of overlap or what uh, information we have to share with each other. Um, I feel like um, I just love how simply you explained everything and all of the, the roles that you do and how uh, you look at, for example, SLD and auditory processing. I've never had um, the collab. I think we've... I have, in a smaller school district and we've had a lot I've had a lot of different um, school psychologists so not not to stay long enough to <laughs> to really get to know and collaborate with one another so I have kind of learned just through listening and through reading reports and uh -huh. I'm like oh now I understand what they do a little bit more now yes. the, recently this second half of the school year I have a school psychologist that I've been collaborating a lot with uh -huh. and I've been able to ask more questions I didn't understand what their um like I understand how the eligibility works and the different, for example, autism. She's like, no, we have the, we have to do this, this, and this, and um, just explaining the different characteristics or the thing, different things that you are actually looking for. Yes. So um, 
but I just love how beautifully you explained that and I wish I would have heard that like at the beginning of my career <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you is there one thing that you enjoy more right now uh, you, I would think you do a little bit of everything assessment counseling and behaviors really so I'm introverted by nature and so people think I'm extroverted because I can be outgoing and I have the appropriate social skills. However, I really just like the assessment. I like to just be in my room writing my report, assessing students. However, I have an inclination towards behavior. I do like behaviors. I'm really interested in behaviors. And so I don't know what part of me is, is gearing towards behaviors because it's not the introverted part. But so assessment is my favorite if I just had to choose one thing you know to do on my day then it would be assessment because it's easy I can you know do that anytime but my heart really leads me towards behaviors and those at-risk students I told you I worked at the juvenile hall for a stint I didn't tell you I worked at a group home for a stint right after I got my bio degree and so my heart is really with the kids that other people you know might uh, turn their back to or look away from um, how has your professional role or like um, scope impacted your personal life? I feel like when we go out, wherever we go now, we're, our ears are just kind of tuned in to people's speech, right? And people's language skills. So we're like, oh, they stutter. Like we, we can hear it. Pragmatic That's language. So funny. Even if it's uh, very subtle. I count people's MLU. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm making sure. What do you guys think about me? <laughs> I'm going to ask you after this now. I'm curious. But it's not in a bad way. That's it's how you guys you, are like, you observe, you notice things that um, even within yourself, I think I started to really within myself realize, oh, like I do this or maybe I need to work on this. I'm over here teaching these skills that I also need to be working on. <laughs> Is there something along those lines for you, I guess, if you're out and about and you're seeing, or I guess with friends or family where you see, oh, it's not just that you can't pay attention. I think people have their broad scopes. Everybody thinks they have something, right? We've yes. talked about this before. But can you actually see like, oh, there you do have more of a hard time processing, auditory processing things. Yes. Yes. So my um, school psychologist lens is on at all times. So with my own family, look, I'm trying to uh, give my kids eligibilities. <laughs> but no, in, in all reality, I do look at other people and even adults and students and kids and my friends' kids. And I'm always looking, oh, you know, your child is developmentally appropriate in this area. Or, oh, your child is advanced in this area. And so it's so funny because sometimes people don't understand. I'm like, oh, their visual processing is so good. Or their auditory <laughs> processing. My husband, sometimes he gets upset because my kids won't hear him the first time. And I'm telling him their auditory processing is still developing. They did, It's not that they're ignoring you. They really didn't hear you. And so, yes, my lens is always on. And it is really funny. And with friends, now they all want me, oh, you you can check for ADHD, you can check for this. And so it's so funny now. Yeah. We know that you're, you know, you just started your school-based uh, psychology role, but what yes. is your ultimate goal? Do you want to stay in the school settings for a while? Do you want to transition to another setting? Well, my ultimate goal right now, because I have children, I have three of my own, and so my ultimate goal is really to just be the most present mother I could be. And so the school setting is where that's at for now. 
my long-term ultimate, ultimate goal, super ultimate goal is to open up my own school one day. And it might be a school that is kind of like a boarding school for students that are in poverty, but you know, something along those lines. I'm still floating the ideas and thinking about it and seeing, you know, what it really is going to manifest to me. I love that. I love that. We need to keep in touch because I'll come help you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, volunteer. Yes. I volunteer. No, not, not look paid. I'm talking about government grants over here. I mean, I think, yeah, it's not very common for me to hear people that work in the schools and then also want to open their own schools. So when I first heard that, I was like, wow, that's, that's very amazing. cool. That's amazing. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm impressed and I want to know everything about it. I got you. <laughs> but then I think I also want to know um, when in that ideal long-term plan, are you planning to pick up more strategies as you go or do you already kind of have an idea in your head of, oh, this is what I'm seeing and this is there's a need. Like this is not present in a lot of the systems. Well, I do have some ideas starting off. However, I'm, I'm an avid, avid learner. I love to learn. I love to research. I wanted to go back to get my PhD, but it just doesn't really make financial sense. The money is not a big difference. I feel that. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I love to learn. And so there's still a lot more that I have to learn. There's no way that I know it all. However, some things I have learned, I just really want to be culturally sensitive and I want to include black and brown children and just I want to, the research to be on children that are black and brown because of the cultural differences. And so I know a lot of people are like, oh, no, nope, she mentioned race. But, you know, it's really important. And I think that, you know, the behaviors and how we treat students right. should that should be taken into consideration. I think consideration. it's not reflected enough in the research. And yes. Which to me, I'm like, how is it evidence based practice if you know if it's not being done on the children, the culture, the way yes. cultures communicate, the way you perceive and understand language and communication and social interaction, all of those things are so different. Yes. And very yes. I totally agree with you. You know, you can't take the kids from Utah (laughs) and try that on the kids in uh, Philadelphia. So, you know. Yeah. No, and I mean, we mentioned it. That's why, I mean, we wanted the podcast so that we can help kind of mentor or be available um, and share our information with other. We are a very small percentage of our field. Yes. Um, Hispanic speech language pathologists. I think there's about 6% of us, um, maybe about give or take a little bit, right? Same thing, bilingual, uh, 3% are black and Afri- wow. African-American. Um, yeah, very few. Uh, Asian and natives, indigenous, even smaller percentages. We're like... Minute. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very small. Is it similar in your field? Yes, it's definitely similar in my field. It's women, woman-dominated oh. and uh, Caucasian women-dominated. Woman-dominated. Okay. And yes, so there is, I feel like the black school psychologists have really rallied around and we have like all types of groups and meetups and things like that. And we even have school psychs of color. So it's of all the colors. And so when I went to the National Association of School Psychologists Conference in Colorado this year, I, you know, it was was hard to find people, you know. It was hard, it, so it, it was a C. <laughs> yeah. It's the same. It's the same in our field. Yeah. Um, I've, I've thought about, like, why don't we, like, as, you know, speech-language pathologists and school psychologists, and, you know, all of us are 
small and have a conglomerate. Have a, exactly. Um, I went recently to our national conference, same thing, but there was a separate conference at um, Black SLP Magic, uh-huh. which is speech and sleep. So that was really cool because it wasn't just, it was for black and brown people. Yes. And we were all like, it I love that. felt so different. Yeah. And so you feel amazing. like you don't yes. have to code switch necessarily. Oh, no, it was amazing. And you could yeah. be, you could be you, your full cultured self, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this year was fun. I got to kind of become a mentor. And I think we've talked about mentorship and how important yes. it is. Is that something that you, one, have had yourself? Um, something you would like to do for others? Become a mentor? What are your thoughts? So I have unofficial mentors. I haven't told them they're my mentors, but they're my mentors. <laughs> and so I have a few professors that are mentors. Believe it or not, even though there's not a lot of women of color in the school psychology field, A lot of my professors were black women, and so I did have a few uh, black women school psychology professors that were my mentors. I had a a male uh, supervisor for my practicum. He's a mentor of mine as well. My brother's (laughs) ex-wife is actually a school psychologist, and she's uh, sort of a mentor as well. So I have a few mentors, and once I get in there in the field, then, you know, maybe I could mentor someone. (laughs) Yeah, when you have your own school, I'm sure. I think that'd be a fun place to learn. Would your school be in L.A., do you think? Um, No. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. It could be in L.A. Don't worry. We'll run the one in L.A. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah, you can have branches. You can have more than one. Maybe, you know, I don't know. It could be L.A. It could be. Do you, okay, we say I was born and raised in L.A. I was born in L.A., but I was raised in Upland, California, which is very suburban. Oh, yeah, I know Upland. Very suburban. (laughs) I mean, extremely suburban. Would you want to open a school there? No. Okay. So it would be in between Upland and L.A., maybe um, West Covina-ish, you know, like right in the middle. You know, you don't want to. Yeah, probably not exactly L.A. Maybe a suburban city outside of L.A. Like, you know, not too suburban, though. So somewhere right in the middle, West Covina or maybe the Valley or something, you know, something like that. If people are inspired by your story or kind of similar, like feel like they can relate, like I I majored in this, I kind of wanted to switch, or maybe you opened up their interest in the idea of school-based psychology, how could they find you? How could they reach you? Do you have a podcast that they can listen to? I do have a podcast. However, I have not released any episodes yet. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called The Crafted Podcast. And it's with me and my husband talking about marriage, relationship, lifestyle, parenting, all the good stuff. And they can reach me on Instagram okay. at yours truly, Kristen, with the I-N and a K. <laughs> Kristen with an I N and a K. Okay. I think we could add it to the um, episode, right? Oh, the description. Yeah, the description. Yeah. We okay. can add it in the profile so y'all can, like, and you can ask questions. If yes. You, have questions. Like, you can ask yeah. questions. Okay, perfect. And all the good stuff. Well, thank you very much for being our first guest. We're very happy. We hope people learned from, you know. Yes, thank you both. Um, This is my first time, y'all, meeting Kristen. (laughs) I've heard, I feel like I know you because I hear so much from Beatriz. Oh, my gosh. All great things. All great things. Um, So I was super excited to do this today. So it's been a pleasure meeting you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Beatriz. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you. All (laughs) righty.